Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introduction and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Bottom line up front, what will this episode cover and what will you learn? Avi Sivasilam from Flexport has some strong opinions about data contracts, but even stronger insights into how to make them work. We covered an overview of data contracts, how they work, and why they are so crucial. Avi shared his passion for the analytics engineer role, his very, very strong passion, uh, why analytics engineers are so crucial to making something like data contracts work especially within the data mesh context, and how to find, create analytics engineers in your organization. Avi takes three rules from API contracts and uh, applies them to data contracts. They must be expressive, they must be reliable and predictable, and they must be stable. For data contracts, the additional requirements are around schema level guarantees. Essentially, is the data correct? And there are also requirements for semantic level guarantees. Is the data accurate? Without the second, you can hit the functioning pipeline broken data problem, which I know a lot of people are hitting. So Abi argues, and I agree, that upstream ownership is a very crucial component to implementing functional and useful data contracts. As Olivier mentioned on a previous episode, if the upstream data providers don't care about data consumers, they're isn't really any architecture or tooling solution that can really help all that much. We discussed the ways for data producers to maintain their data contracts even as the application evolves and why a domain sharing data via the domain model instead of how the data is persisted in the application is so crucial. Essentially, any change in the persistence model is going to change all of your downstream data uh, applications, and that's not a good thing. We also discussed the lack of tooling help at the moment around data contracts and why vendors need to get off their butts to help address this major pain point and challenge and, and where and how they could. We covered a whole lot more, couldn't even uh, begin to put it all up into a, a bluff, but uh, I really hope you enjoy this. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Okay, really excited about this episode today. I've got Abi Sivasilam from Flexport here, and we're going to be talking about schema contracts, data contracts, kind of what's the difference, why they matter, um, a, a lot of really interesting things that I think are important in general for data mesh, but also just in general for um, data management and thinking about treating your data as you know a product and why 
a lot of the challenges that we've had around broken data, we can at least start to address if we if we go down this this path well. So, Abi, uh, if you could give a brief intro to yourself, and then we can kind of jump into uh, a little bit about your background with the data mesh specifically, and then we can jump into the the data contract stuff. Great. Uh, thanks, Scott. Uh, so my name is Abi. I head up most of the data footprint inside of Flexport and the data and growth teams uh, inside of Flexport. Been working in data for a while. Uh, been very passionate about uh, data mesh in particular. Scott and I have talked about this, uh, you know, in great de- in great detail. And uh, you know, some of you may have heard my my talk on on data mesh. Uh, for me, that talk, the most important concepts there are not uh, about the data mesh specifically. It's about uh, the things that enable the data mesh to happen. Uh, you know, when I when I gave when I gave that talk, and Nick Schrock over at uh, Elemental Dagster uh, saw it, and he you know he responded to me that uh, the the main animating kernel that he took away uh, is that look, data is the API between teams. That's what you're trying to say, right? Uh, and that's a pretty succinct and and, and expressive way of, of thinking about it. Uh, and that is what I'm most passionate about. I'm most passionate about this notion of uh, to make something like a data mesh work, uh, we we really need these uh, this notion of data as the API between teams to work, and and that brings us to talking a lot more about uh, data contracts. Yeah, and if people haven't seen it, I'll drop the link in the show notes to Abby's presentation at the data mesh learning meetup. It was it was really great, and um, we kind of discussed that it's I think it's the model that any scale up um, or company that doesn't have, you know, a hundred domains or anything should at least consider because um, it really encapsulates a lot of the benefits of data mesh without having necessarily to go through every aspect that you would need for a very large company to implement. So I'm, I'm very positive on a lot of the the stuff that they've done and you know we can quibble whether that would be called data mesh exactly or not i don't really care <laughs> at the end of the day the whole reason why i'm excited about data mesh and and all this stuff is that it's looking like it could solve a lot of great challenge or a lot of these big challenges and so if people are able to solve the challenges that's what i want to promote and i think flexport and abi did a great job of of taking on those challenges and and Abby did a fantastic job of presenting kind of what they're doing and why. So um, I really, really recommend that one. But uh, so let's talk about that kind of API concept between teams, you know, a- API contracts. It, do you mind giving a little bit about your high level definition or your high level thoughts on API contract and schema contract? And then we can kind of add in the, the extra layers of what a data contract might mean, but just so people are that aren't necessarily with a yeah, deep background so, in this are familiar. So, you know, for me, this, this API interface, uh, what it means for there to be an API interface that uh, is essentially denominated in data and what it means for that to work is uh, you basically need three things. Uh, you need one uh, for that API, uh, that interface to be expressive, right? that everything within the context um, that is communicating out to the rest of the world uh, is expressed. All the important context is expressed. Uh, two, uh, that uh, that API interface is reliable. Uh, you know, it uh, it has quality guarantees. It has uptime guarantees. Uh, I can. It, it's predictable. Uh, if I if I pull it, I know what I'm going to get. And three, that it's stable. Uh, that. The, what the contract exposes today is what it exposes tomorrow within reason. Contracts can evolve, uh, but within reason, there isn't, uh, there isn't much volatility uh, that uh, along with reliability, uh, the uh, contract is not just saying the same thing that it said yesterday, uh, but it's the same saying the same set of things in the same kind of ways and the same kind of semantics as it did yesterday. So, so those are three things that we need for this kind of notion of this interface to work. And that's what animates the need for, for data contracts. That's what animates the need for these kind of explicit contract guarantees. And for me, uh, the, that then you know, calls into question, well, what, what, what do we need in terms of this contract? Uh, what kind of guarantees do we need? 
And, you know, being a little reductive, maybe we can unpack this more. The kind of guarantees you need are, are really of two kinds. Uh, you need uh, essentially, let's say, schema level guarantees and uh, semantics guarantees. And the way I like to think about this is correctness versus accuracy, uh, right? Schemas are about the data being essentially correct. Uh, this is what developers historically care about. Uh, and semantic contracts are about the data being accurate, right? An accurate representation and an accurate and stable representation uh, for uh, what often consumers care about. Uh, and when we think about this as you know correctness versus accuracy, as you know schemas versus semantics, uh, then we can think about approaching this in uh, you know at, at, in this kind of bifurcated way, right? Um, so schema contracts uh, have a, a you know a reasonably established history in, in the development community. Uh, developers know how to you know create schema contracts. They know how to you know ensure that their Postgres tables don't break. Uh, and there is tooling for this. There's process for this. Uh, and there's the incentives for this. Uh, and so developers are pretty good at this. Uh, developers are you know, reasonably good at ensuring uh, when they care about the schema not evolving in, in, in destructive ways, uh, that, uh, that there is you know, CI/CD at the data production layer. Uh, you know, there may be things like a, a schema registry. Uh, there uh, may be, they may even be uh, uh, some transformations and pipeline testing uh, when, when, the, when the production team owns those things. Uh, so schema testing, uh, you know, works reasonably well. The challenge with schema testing uh, is that the uh, the domains themselves uh, that are doing the, the the product teams themselves that are uh, doing those schema tests uh, are only designing those schema tests for their own use cases, right? Um, they don't really know all the other downstream users uh, that are are relying on that data. Most notably, data teams, uh, and so their schema tests are uh, which they're very able to do. Uh, uh, from a technical perspective, their schema tests uh, aren't set up to succeed because what they're missing is not technological enablement. What they're missing is context, downstream context, on all the implicit contracts, right? Contracts that the dev team never made. Uh, all those implicit contracts on, hey, we are relying. We have this, you know, SQL model, you know, built downstream. We have this, uh, you know, Python model built downstream that relies on your schema to look exactly like this. Uh, and uh, and that implicit contract is often not made explicit. So the the, the biggest challenge with uh, with schema with correctness is is really not not so much technology. It's it's context. Um, let me let me maybe pause there. Do you want me to pause there? Do you want me to kind of keep yeah. going and talk you, a little bit more about semantics? No. So and I think if we could even uh, pause and, and back up to even a higher level and maybe say sure. some of the implied things out loud, <laughs> which is um a little bit about why this matters which you know from a high level to my perspective is that if we aren't talking about uh, or if we aren't looking at who is consuming and why we keep breaking the downstream consumers people understand that but it's kind of what you talked about of the schema and the semantics that we're even, you know, yes, the, the pipeline may break. And so then the schema has changed and you, and you broke it at that level, but the semantics may also have changed and the schema hasn't. And that, you know, the downstream people are trying to figure out, is this the new normal? Is this something that has changed? Or is it that the data itself is essentially, you know, for all intents and purposes, broken? Yeah. So like, if you could talk just a little bit about if we're not doing these things, what what are the common impacts of that? Just so people, again, who aren't as in the day to day of this, will will be able to grok why this is so crucial. Uh, yeah, I mean, all I can say is for anyone that doesn't uh, immediately appreciate the problem, uh, you know, God bless them. I'm jealous <laughs> because for <laughs> anyone for anyone that does, though, uh, you know, this this will trigger PTSD, right? Um, the, uh, look, let's take the example of Flexport. Uh, yeah, at Flexport, uh, Flexport is a very operationally driven company. Uh, you know, we're in the business of, of global freight, uh, and we build a lot of technology to, you know, automate that, that business of, uh, of freight forwarding. But, uh, we also have a lot of operational analytics. We have a lot of what we call internally workflow dashboards, which is basically, hey, you know, there's a task that I as an operator need to do, uh, in this operation, operationally intensive business. And for that task, I need data essentially from, the upstream from the product from from source systems 
There may not be an interface that structures that data for exactly the task I'm trying to do. Um, so I need to structure it. I need to structure it with SQL. And uh, you know, enter you know 2020 uh, uh, and early 2021 uh, when you know we really started making the move to data mesh. And what animated that move? Well, one of the things that animated that move uh, was that this workflow dashboard use case was so widespread throughout the company that we had thousands and thousands of these you know quote unquote workflow dashboards uh, that were you know, were all uh, you know building SQL models uh, to help an operator do a mission critical task to help an operator do a mission critical task on top of data that they expected to not have change. Uh, and the problem is that's thousands and thousands of implicit contracts. That's thousands and thousands of times uh, that a, uh, a downstream consumer uh, basically expects that data will never change, which is not a fair expectation. And when data does change upstream, when a developer does need to refactor, uh, for whatever reason, right, performance, or because the app has changed, or because the semantics no longer make sense, uh, you know, a column goes missing here, a table gets renamed there, and all of those thousands of the downstream use cases, which are, you know, many of them are mission critical, right, huge business value, all of those downstream use cases break, right. Um, a tale as old as time, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm sure many of your many of your audience uh, knows that. Now, the other side of this, uh, you know, you can see it a little bit in the in the operational dashboarding use case, but you can see it much more acutely in uh, classical analytics use cases is uh, semantic drift. Uh, you know, we have a uh, an, an ERP system or we have a, uh, you know, a, a product finance system uh, that has to keep up with business model changes. Uh, and when business models change, that means core business facts change. What churn meant, what a churned user meant, uh, what the event called churned in the database meant in 2019 is not what it means in 2020. Uh, what, a, uh, what a quote meant uh, in the booking process, what a quote meant in 2019 is not what it means in 2020. Uh, and these things drift over time. Uh, the semantics get overloaded or the semantics drift over time. Uh, and now, uh, you know, downstream consumers that are used to thinking about, hey, churn means this, uh, can no longer rely on that in a stable way, right? Which means that all the metrics that you have, churn rate uh, doesn't mean anything. Churn rate spikes in January. Well, is that because customers are, uh, you know, churning at increasing rates or does that mean something has fundamentally changed about the semantics of churn, right? So the analytics use case is, is rife with examples where, um, small semantic drift uh, means that look the data is the data is correct right? the data is not incorrect the data is correct uh, but it's no longer accurate from the perspective of consumers uh, and that creates system wide thrash right and it's another example of this kind of implicit contract yeah no that that's fantastic uh, color and and kind of what you talked about as well um, is something that I'm I'm starting to see as kind of something that that I don't think a lot of people are talking about relative to data mesh but it's almost like your um, your data catastrophe <laughs> surface area decreases because things are in a single product versus if you think about um, the the chain all the way down of something that may be supporting a mission critical task, it may be uh, reliant on, you know, 15, 20 upstream tables and anywhere in that upstream may have changed. It may be that the developer themselves, you know, did that change or it may be any of the other uh, ones up and down the stream. And so thinking about, you know, column level lineage and what might have changed and trying to track it up and down, I think Data Mesh helps to address that somewhat. But exactly what you're talking about, if we, if the developer isn't aware uh, or doesn't care <laughs> about those downstream use cases, then can we actually really... Um, prevent these things or are we always in a firefight? Yeah, so, no, that, that's, that's, that's exactly right. That's great. So um, really liked uh, a lot of the way you, you frame this in a very understandable, easy way about the API must be expressive and reliable and predictable and that the contract is stable. So can you go into a little bit about how you're actually tackling those, those challenges? Because I, I think kind of, what you said a little bit earlier of, you know, somebody doesn't have to be uh, experiencing them, you know, count yourself as lucky. But also, I think it's even the people that are in the weeds and experiencing these, they may not be able to easily pop up and think about, okay, how do I tackle all of these at once in one kind of cohesive? Yeah. Frame? 
Yeah. So, you know, for me, uh, it's, it's always about socio-technical solutions where the real emphasis is on the socio. Uh, that's the animating ethos behind data mesh and, you know, the, the same principle applies here. So, you know, I started, I started talking, uh, you know, before we took that step back, I started talking a little bit about schema testing and how the problem uh, is not really technology, right? It's context. Uh, and I think that's a good place to start. Uh, so for both schema testing and semantic testing, uh, for both aspects of data contracts, uh, it helps to invert the problem, right? Why doesn't this happen today? Uh, and why this doesn't happen today is not predominantly about technology. In general, uh, to, to kind of get us to the, to the promised land, uh, technology is an augment, um, but it's not the critical enabler. Uh, and the critical enabler is actually other things, process, organization, culture, et cetera. So if we invert the problem, why doesn't schema, uh, schema level testing and semantic level testing happen to the extent that we want in, in the kind of ways that we want? Uh, well, it's a few things. Uh, number one, uh, it, it, it's, it's the incentives, right? Uh, you know, most problems in the world are really an incentive problem. Uh, and for the data producer, uh, you know, it's nothing against the data producer, right? Uh, the developer has a set of incentives, uh, and that set of incentives is to build product. Uh, and data uh, per that incentive structure that faces the developer is just not generally seen as a product. Data is a byproduct, uh, or data is, a, is kind of a raw ingredient for their own product development process, right? Uh, so there is this kind of incentive mismatch where uh, developers upstream, uh, they're, not, they're not told, they're not required, uh, they're not incentivized. Uh, to ensure that all those thousands, in our case, all those thousands of workflow dashboards uh, are constantly being maintained. Um, two, uh, suppose they were, right? Suppose, uh, you know, that these developers, you know, really want to ensure that they're meeting all of those downstream needs. Uh, well, the biggest problem is context, right? You don't know how data is consumed. You don't know how, uh, what all of those implicit contracts are. Uh, for you to even uh, you know, manage uh, schema constancy or semantic constancy against, right? So the number two problem is, is context. Um, three is uh, speed and experimentation. Uh, so the pace of change in a, in a, in a fast-moving dev organization uh, really frustrates uh, attempts to manage things like changing semantics. In a really fast-moving product organization, I've seen this at Flexboard. Uh, you know, I brought this example a few minutes ago of the notion of a quote, Look, the notion of a quote may change. Uh, business strategy may change. Business uh, scope and boundaries may expand considerably. Uh, where what you thought of as, you know, in the case of Flexport, what you thought of as a shipment uh, in 2019 is no longer really relevant because the notion of a shipment has expanded 10x uh, because Flexport does so many more things today, right? So uh, the pace of, of development at, at fast-moving companies requires uh, you know, speed and experimentation, uh, which uh, can really frustrate the ability to uh, kind of internalize these, uh, these downstream destructive changes. Uh, and the fourth, and this is, uh, this is not, to, not at all to be trivialized, uh, is skill. Uh, that thinking about data modeling uh, is a skill. Uh, it's absolutely a skill. In the MVC world, this notion in the development world of kind of model view controller, you know, we talk a lot about uh, in the software development world about fat models, right, and skinny controllers. We talk a lot about data models uh, exerting gravity uh, over uh, the the development you know, problem space, and we we pay a lot of lip service to that. Uh, but, you know, we, we don't train our uh, software developers primarily in thinking about data modeling. We train the modern software developer primarily in thinking about uh, gluing together JavaScript libraries, right? Um, and uh, it, 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 it hacking together DevOps. Uh, the most important, the most fundamental uh, part of architecture is the data, is the data model. Um, that should inform the entire problem space. Uh, and, you know, frankly, and it's not a knock against software engineers. You know, software engineers are doing the best they can, uh, given their constraints and incentives. Uh, but you know, often that skill of thinking about data models in a way that will evolve, in a way that is stable, um, uh, in a way that really treats it as an architectural first order concern is also often lacking, right? Uh, so I think, you know, if you, if you invert the problem, like, why don't these things happen? Well, it's, you know, one incentives, two context, three speed and experimentation, and four skill. And so when I think about addressing this, and when I thought about addressing this uh, in, at Flexport, I think about that inversion problem and trying to correct for, for those imbalances, right, which are, again, not primarily technology. Technology is an augment, but it's not the critical enabler. And so what do we do at Flexport? 
Well, uh, the incentive problem, uh, well, so it's a combination of kind of organizational and process changes, right? Uh, predominantly. And then, you know, we'll talk a little bit about technology. So it starts with how we approach this notion of the data mesh, right? So how do we attack the incentive problem? Well, we tell teams, um, hey, teams, you now, uh, you now own data as a product. This is the most important takeaway of, of the data mesh philosophy. Data is a product and not a byproduct. It's the most uh, important North Star. Um, and we tell teams, we position data producer teams uh, that the data you expose uh, needs to be a product in the ways that we care about uh, API products, which is expressive, exposes all the context you need uh, or that you have in all the ways that downstream consumers might need. Uh, in ways that are ergonomic and usable and, and all of that, um, that they're reliable and they're stable. Um, and so we actually position that responsibility in product teams, right? Uh, we then uh, follow that up with staffing. Uh, so, you know, attacking the skill piece, uh, you know, the, uh, the linchpin for our data mesh vision at Flexport is the role of analytics engineering, right? Where analytics engineering is not just doing you know, SQL-based modeling in DBT um, and in Snowflake, uh, but they are getting involved as data experts, as people that know how to think and reason about data, uh, to think about how to structure data in ways that scale. All of that thinking that's useful in building data warehouse models, I absolutely believe is useful in defining upstream models. And so that's where we should leverage them. Uh, and so we inject uh, analytics engineers um, as a part of scrum teams, as a part of those data producer teams uh, to help them think about what that data architecture looks like, right? Uh, and this starts at the, at the PRD stage, at the product requirements doc stage. So uh, when a product requirements doc is created by let's say a product manager on a scrum team, uh, from the perspective of data, one of three things is happening. Either we're creating new data, we're mutating old data, or we're using existing data in different ways, right? We're you know creating some semantic drift, or we're creating some kind of conceptual uh, uh, you know, nuances or changes on top of data, right? One of those three things is happening. When those three things are are happening out of a PRD, the analytics engineer is immediately positioned as part of that Scrum team to say. Uh, hey, I am a data expert. I am an expert at modeling uh, data architecture uh, from, from, from the perspective of the actual the structure of data itself, that is. Uh, let me help you reason about how do I take the new data and layer it into our, our existing data models? How do we mutate old data in a way that's graceful? And how do we uh, uh, capture that semantic drift uh, you know, right at the moment where it's about to happen? How do I stop and capture semantic drift? Uh, and gracefully evolve the domain models because those analytics engineers are positioned with the downstream consumers in some sense, right? They have the context of downstream consumers uh, because they also are doing modeling in, in Snowflake at the analytical layer. And so analytics engineers, they, they, they wear a, an extremely important hat because they have the skills of a data expert, someone that is really good about reasoning about data, and they have the context of both worlds, right? They have the context about the axis of change from the scrum team because they sit in that scrum team, but they also have that context about the downstream use cases and most notably the downstream use cases in analytics, right? Which is really where uh, the failure vector is, is most pronounced here. Yeah, so number one, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, uh, I, I think this is phenomenal, but I also, I'm kind of wondering if somebody doesn't have the flexibility to have where you've gone with this. Cause I, I feel like this is the, uh, a, you know, probably not your end state, end state, but it's a good uh, place to aim for. <laughs> yeah. um, how, like, how would people think about moving towards this? And and if you're the consumer, is there a way to do this defensively to to at least test for how things might have changed upstream, or or does it all have to come from uh, the pushing that that data as a product and that data ownership into the domains. And if you don't have that as a consumer, are you kind of SOL? So look, I, I, I think the consumer efforts are best spent advocating for uh, data as a product, not as a byproduct. You, 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 you know, I, I believe you just can't get anywhere unless you change the incentive structure and you change the responsibility structure. So, you know, the, the table stakes, uh, First order priority for consumers needs to be how do we get this notion of uh, data mesh type responsibilities? How do we get this notion of data as a product, uh, as a as an incentive, 
uh, into product teams, uh, into the ethos of product teams, uh, in some way, maybe formal, maybe informal, maybe it's just like building empathy, right? Um, but that has to happen. Um, I, I don't see a way. I, I don't see a way to make this work without that happening. Now, the AE of it all, you know, do we need analytics engineers? Well, I would strongly advocate that people get analytics engineers. Uh, I'm long on not only the role of analytics engineering, but this flavor of analytics engineering. Um, so I would advocate that all companies uh, try and make those uh, make those kinds of investments. I think it's the most important role in all of data. Um, that said, uh, you know, our process uh, for like, what is our what is our process for analytics engineering review? Uh, it's essentially that that PRD uh, goes to uh, you know the EM engineering manager and the analytics engineer, and then the analytics engineer and the EM work together to define different aspects of uh, uh, of the architecture that's required for uh, you know meeting the needs of that of that feature or or story that we're developing. Um, and essentially, there is then uh, an architectural review uh, that includes a data model review. Uh, and that data model review goes out to the broader community of, of uh, analytics engineers and staff engineers. Uh, the reason I bring this up is uh, a good place to start if you don't have analytics engineers is to just formalize the notion of data review. Uh, that with every PRD, uh, product teams should have a data review. Now we have, uh, you know, we have often we have engineering and architecture reviews for reasonably mature product teams. The best product teams have the best the technology development organizations have, uh, you know, an architecture review, a design review um, uh, that goes out to a cross-functional group uh, and, a, and a data review as well. Um, and, you know, that might sound like a lot of bureaucracy. It might sound like a lot of process, but, you know, where I've seen this work really well, uh, you build the muscle for this in ways that, uh, you know, are expensive uh, in the short term, but pay dividends over the long term and you get more efficient over time. Uh, and I think the, the place to start is actually building a data review where, hey, for every PRD, uh, the data producers say, whoever wants to, you know, wants to come and give feedback on how we're evolving the data, the domain models, all consumers are welcome, all consumer groups are welcome. Uh, and, uh, you know, speak now or forever hold your peace. But this is where we're going to broadcast. Uh, and we're going to really engage in a dialogue. Um, and, you know, if out of that data review, uh, there aren't, you know, there are no changes, uh, you know, the, the changes that were proposed uh, at the beginning of the uh, review or the changes that we leave with at the end of the review, that's okay, too. The next step uh, that, uh, you know, is also a, a good uh, table stakes thing for uh, consumer teams to advocate for is let's just publish those contracts. Let's just publish those contracts. And it can be on Confluence, it can be on Google Docs, it can be wherever. Um, but let's make sure that they are published with enough metadata um, that we know uh, not just if there's schema drift, uh, but also if there's semantic drift, right? Um, and this enters into the notion of a, some kind of a data catalog. Uh, right. Uh, there's many data catalogs out there today, uh, you know, varying levels of robustness, but some kind of data catalog that allows you to see, um, allows the developers to see, hey, I defined a churn in this way. Uh, is that still true? Uh, if not, let me update that um, and, uh, uh, and and have that be a common artifact that everyone else can consume as well. So I think the table stakes answer your question, um, Scott, I think the, uh, the absolutely essential things I think all organizations need to do are somehow change that incentive structure, uh, uh, responsibility structure, uh, and uh, try and implement things like uh, a, a formal or semi-formal data review, uh, and uh, uh, and ideally advocate for uh, the uh, analytics engineering function to play a more prominent role. Yeah, I think that's that's great advice, and and um, you know, I, I guess. One thing that um, I've been trying to figure out is how do you communicate when changes are coming? You know, you talked a little bit about the empathy earlier, but how do you communicate that changes are a coming, right? Um, that, hey, we are going to make this, not, not that this schema change has been pushed to production. It's, hey, we're, we're changing this. And, you know, are we also setting up timeframes to review that the, the semantics hasn't changed? Or how, do you have any thoughts on what you're doing for that? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, you know, for us uh, at the analytics engineering layer, um, we've talked a little bit about this notion of domain data products in, in, in that data mesh talk that we referenced. Uh, we try as much as possible to not make destructive changes. Uh, we try as much as possible to uh, isolate those changes if they if they need to happen uh, in ways that 
uh, are, are kind of bound to new artifacts, to new domain data products, um, or uh, to kind of evolve schemas in ways that are non-destructive, right? Adding columns, but you know, not mutating schema. Um, adding columns, but not allowing old columns to, to drift in their semantics. So, um, you know, the first the first answer is just uh, really take seriously the notion of minimizing uh, destructive changes. Uh, but when destructive changes have to happen, and sometimes they do have to happen, uh, you know, different uh, different domains within our different uh, nodes within our data mesh uh, will take different approaches. For some uh, nodes, the consumers of that node are very clear. Uh, you know, node X, uh, you know, we know we have five consumers. Uh, we have good relationship with those consumers. Uh, we, we, know, we know who the representatives are for those consumers. And when changes are coming, we'll broadcast to those consumers. Uh, for, uh, for other domains, uh, it's, it's less clear uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, and uh, in those cases, we uh, have an SLA uh, for a change period, a uh, stay of execution, uh, and we have you know, some standard announcement channels, right? And I think people can start easily here. Uh, you know, an announcements channel in Slack or, uh, uh, you know, or, your, or your knowledge management system. Uh, that you encourage people to uh, encourage kind of representatives from different consumer domains to subscribe to, uh, and then they can get these kind of you know subscribe-based uh, push updates that you know, changes are are coming. So we really try and minimize change where you know where we can, and then you know, changes happen. You know we, we we try and be proactive, and we're trying to get even more creative about hey who are the downstream consumers. Um, so we're trying to do things like. Uh, and some data catalogs make this make this even easier. Um, we're trying to do things like use the query logs of Snowflake to see yeah. who is consuming my data, right? Um, exactly. And in the analytical world, this is this is a this is a it's a great solution for us. Uh, uh, look over the past six months, uh, what types of users, what departments, what specific users have used my data? Well, those are the people that I should know, right? Uh, and uh, and that the tooling around that is you know today homespun, but it's it's. Uh, I think that tooling will emerge uh, in the industry more broadly over the next year. Yeah, that's that's something I'm I'm kind of pushing for for multiple reasons. Kind of what you talked about of uh, kind of this concept of column level lineage of mm-hmm. from a contract standpoint as well. That um, so if somebody is a registered consumer, whether it's a pub sub model or you have something else. Um, exactly what you're talking about. The tooling isn't really there. So how do we do that? Eh, like that's, I'm kind of asking that question, but, um, and that you can alert people that there, that changes are coming, but also that you have an automated way. Say you've got a downstream data product that leverages your upstream data product and something's changing in that. Um, if it's not going to affect them from how, they consume that product. If they're consuming columns A, B, C, D, E, and you're changing F and G, they just automatically move to the next version. They're not staying on the same version. So how do we automate that versioning? Maybe that's too much magic to try and push into the the data platform, but like those concepts of how do we evolve our schema and and semantics in a way that's, that's useful um, and then the other aspect of it as well is you talked about those people that are consuming it. If we have that information, then we can do kind of data product marketing where we say, hey, what you talked about, that concept of a, of a shipment has evolved, you know, 10x. Once you start to allow or you start to create new data that might be useful for downstream consumers, you have an idea of who sh- who should be alerted that something's coming that could be useful to them. So you add a new feature to your data product that, hey, we, we added this new table or we split the way that we were thinking about this and we added a couple more transformations or whatever it is, that we have that concept as well of, of empathy for the downstream, not just to not break them, but to continue to add value to them that, hey, we, we think that we've created something that could add value and, and that you can also go and talk to them, right? You know who's potentially consuming it. So you can go and have that conversation and say, what more should we be doing? What, what is uh, you know, our data on the inside that might be useful that we might want to move to data on the outside? What, what might we have 
that we're not sharing because we didn't think it was useful, but we're going to have that conversation with folks. So I think that's Uh, all, but the tooling isn't there at all. Like that's just my crazy brain stuff. Yeah. The the tooling isn't, isn't there at all. First of all, I love the notion of data product marketing. I'm definitely going to, definitely going to steal that and, uh, and use liberally. Thanks for that. Um, No, so, you know, now we get to, you know, maybe a, a little bit about the tooling. Uh, so yes, all of that absolutely resonates. Um, you know, and I've, I've said over and over again, it's it's first and foremost a the, the socio and then the technical. But look, the technical is pretty important too. Uh, everything is high friction without the technical. Uh, and I think you know what you just touched on are really the the three biggest opportunities for tooling uh, in the space for now for to enable this. Uh, one is uh, more context around what what you refer to as column level lineage. Uh, but the problem with the way we think about column level lineage today is we don't think about terminal use <laughs> as a lineage, right? <laughs> um, right. Um, it's, it's, it's basically only transformation pipelines, right? But what if I just put it in a SQL query uh, and it's an exposure, right? Uh, we don't really think about that as part of the lineage graph. Uh, and that is a major opportunity. Uh, the only way you can do that is basically by introspecting, you know, like a query parser or something, right? Um, so I think that's that's one area where I think the tooling, uh, you know, needs to, and I, I, I believe will get better. Uh, today, people are, are, are patching this together internally. Um, the second is the data catalog. Uh, so what is the home for, what is the hub for uh, data product marketing? Uh, well, that's the data catalog, right? Um, that's where the, the consumers can, can subscribe. That's where the uh, producers can kind of manage that data product marketing uh, from a workflow perspective, right? And not just from a content perspective. Um, so I think the, the the development of those data catalogs to support what you're calling is data product marketing is, is huge. Hopefully the, uh, the data catalog space folks are, are listening to this call. Um, and the third is, uh, is around data publishing, right? Uh, and enabling publishing to be more, um, more, more ergonomic. Now you mentioned, uh, you mentioned, uh, hey, well, you know, maybe we will version our schemas and you know, version those APIs, so to speak, right? Like we would have normal APIs that are not not purely data APIs. Uh, how do you enable uh, data producers to do that? Uh, that is today something that isn't very ergonomic, um, and you know, we have we have patched that together. Uh, I'm happy to talk about that on, on this call or another. We patched that together in ways. Uh, that address some of these needs for data producers. How do we think about schema evolution? How do we think about separating the persistence model and domain model, uh, but still having them be tied together in some way? Uh, so those kinds of you know producer level instrumentation uh, is, is I think the, the next big frontier. Uh, say there's some open source tools, but you really have to you really have to uh, you know patch it together and duct tape it. That's that's the problem. I mean, uh, Jamak and the ThoughtWorks folks are saying that from across their implementations is that the tooling is just not here because it's where a lot of the tools have come up around trying to solve very specific pain points instead of the, it's almost like the integration concepts of integrating between two different tools. Everybody has to integrate between every single thing and everything's kind of this one-off versus how do we really think about how you could um, do your whole end to end. And then is there kind of an economic factor to being able to sell to that, right? Of, of, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do these smaller pieces and create a whole bunch of them. And do I have to then work with every single tool and integrate with every company and, and do that, that concept. So, uh, I didn't. I didn't put that very clearly, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, if if you've got a, a little bit of time on sure. the the where you've you've gone with kind of your rolling your own of your tooling and and things like that, I think that would be really fascinating, especially for the data mesh people. But I think for anybody, right? When people are talking about these challenges, mm-hmm. I, I just started digging into this, and when I'm talking to people everybody is is seemingly having the same challenges mm-hmm. but there isn't anything out there that i'm finding you know just searching data contracts i found i think five pieces of content total yep. yeah so, <laughs> like yeah i think uh you know i think that like so i mentioned three three types of tooling that uh are maybe most important right now, that column level lineage uh, category, that kind of data catalog, managing that data, that home for data product marketing, and that third of data publishing. 
And I think maybe uh, the the most painful, uh, the most high leverage uh, place to focus right now is that third category on data publishing. Uh, and you know, the way I think about data publishing and data contracts uh, is so. First of all, I think the data world in general really needs to embrace uh, a lot of the architectural principles and patterns um, of the microservices world, uh, the solo world. And, you know, that's sort of controversial, right? You talk about microservices, you'll immediately lose you know, half the audience. Um, and, you know, I, I also think that there's a balanced uh, answer here, right? And we shouldn't over-apply uh, uh, some, uh, some of the principles either. Uh, but the thing that I really care about from the microservices, uh, uh, you know, set of principles is that, uh, number one, we should have bounded contexts that are well-defined. Um, and two, we should have well-defined contracts between those uh, those contexts. Uh, and how do uh, microservices implement that? Well, typically, uh, microservices do not implement that by exposing uh, their persistence model. And this is, I think, the most important thing that the data community uh, I, I would I would try and impress on the data community, uh, which is to move away from persistence model coupling. Um, because it, it makes this whole notion of uh, data contracts uh, uh, considerably more difficult on, on really both sides, right? Because the reality is uh, persistence models, there's good reasons for persistence models to evolve. There's good reasons for persistence models to evolve more often than the domain model, right? Uh, and you know, we're getting a little bit, uh, a little bit, a little bit technical here. Uh, but essentially, persistence model is how do I actually store the data? If I'm a product team, how do I actually store the data in my Postgres tables or whatever, right? Uh, what is a domain model? A domain model is uh, you can think of it as kind of the logical model on top of the persistence model, right? What are the stable kinds of business concepts on top of this persistence model? Now, in most product teams. The logical model, the domain model, is not going to change as much, right? The logical model is relatively stable. It's the persistence model that is the primary axis of change. Uh, and one way to manage this whole data contract notion is to embrace the separation of the persistence model and the domain model, right? These things should be decoupled. Um, that's what you do in microservices. A microservice A does not say, hey, microservice B, here's my Postgres database. Uh, I promise I'll never change it, right? That would be absurd. What they have is an overlay on top of this. Um, and what they expose is, you know, through either gRPC or through events, um, they expose this kind of abstracted logical model. And yet we don't do that ever in, uh, in data, right? One of the things I talked about in my data mesh talk was uh, the minute you have a data system, the minute you have an analytical system, a data warehouse, what have you, you are now living in a service-oriented world, right? You have two services. You have a data service, you have a data system, and you have your production system, even if your production system is a monolith, right? And the minute you have that, the same, the same animating principle of don't expose your persistence model still applies, right? The minute you have a data system, you should start thinking about exposing, about moving away from classic CDC and moving to, uh, you know, in my view, event-based replication, push-based, event-based replication, uh, uh, where what you are event eventing is uh, a, uh, a, a, a domain model, essentially, right? Changes to your domain model. Um, I, I'm happy to go into a little bit more detail here, but really what we need here is we need to make it easy for uh, teams to construct their domain model, uh, for teams to relate their persistence model and their domain model, uh, for teams to publish then changes to their domain model. You know, I'm a big fan of uh, domain-driven design, right? In domain-driven design world, there's basically, uh, there's aggregates, entities, and value objects, right? Um, uh, aggregates, so the classic example is uh, like a bill line item, right? Uh, for a bill line item, uh, well, the dollar amount on that bill line item is a value object, right? It's a property. Um, the bill line item itself is what we would call a, an entity, right? It's, it's a thing that represents a business reference, right? Uh, the aggregate in this case is the bill because bill line items don't make sense on their own, right? No one cares about a bill line item on its own, but they'll only care about bills, right, as a, as a unit. So, you know, to me, what I um, require of the engineering teams here is when, define your domain model, and when a value object changes, rebroadcast the aggregate, right? Rebroadcast the whole aggregate. Uh, and so the way we approach that is uh, uh, using, the, using a transactional outbox, uh, which is, again, something I 
highly recommend as a standard pattern. And, and the Debezium blog actually has a post that sort of covers elements of this. And, and I, I, I definitely re- encourage people to check it out. Um, to me, the right pattern is uh, lean into a transactional outbox uh, where uh, that transactional outbox then gives you the, the guarantees that are often difficult, the transactional guarantees that are often difficult in an event-driven world, right? Like, uh, like ordering, <laughs> for instance, right? Transactional consistency. Um, so use a transactional outbox, publish uh, when a value object changes, publish that whole aggregate into that transactional outbox, uh, and then use something like Debezium uh, to pick up from that transactional outbox uh, and to emit it however you want to emit it, right? Um, you know, hell, for, from, from that point, uh, you can even use classic CDC tools, right? But what you're getting is actually just the uh, event box or event outbox, right? What you're getting is actually just the contents of that transactional outbox. Um, so that's, that's kind of the core of this. And then if you build on that core, now you can do fancy things like, and, and this is what we're, we're working towards here and we have in pockets where, okay, well now how do we manage schema changes? Uh, well, it depends on your stack, right? But one way that we're approaching this is, well, what do we write in that, uh, what do we write in that transactional outbox? Uh, well, we can write the payload in that transactional outbox as a protobuf binary, right? Uh, as one of these schema schema managed um, uh, representation formats, right? Um, schema conscious, schema aware representation formats, as opposed to you know classic JSON. And so, if you take uh, protobuf or you know some other you know schema conscious format, uh, and that's what you're encoding into the transactional outbox then now you can allow consumers and you can allow the middleware that gets your data from, uh, from your, uh, your producing system and into you know, your downstream system, you can allow that to be schema aware too, right? You can allow that to have version contracts where, hey, this was the old version, this is the new version. Uh, you know, if there's a new version, uh, isolate this new version so that there's no destructive changes to the old. Isolate this new version to a new table. Create a new table in Snowflake and, and start depositing these contracts into, into the new version. Meanwhile, use the uh, use the old version of the schema to continue keeping the old uh, old table alive. Right? Uh, you can start to do these kinds of fancy things, and this end to end process has to today be patched. Right? Uh, you know, I'm a strong believer in this pattern. Uh, you know, I, I'm a strong believer in the domain driven design of it all. Very strong believer in the decoupling of persistence models and domain models. Uh, uh, and uh, and then you know creating uh, uh, this propagation mechanism that uh, can rely on uh, you know deserialization deserialization uh, mechanisms that uh, we can we can put on top of schema aware uh, representation formats and all of that today to get today has to be you know piecemeal together uh, from from different tools and I think that's where the big uh, the big leverage point would be how do we make it really easy uh, to manage this process and most especially manage that decomposition that decoupling of persistence model and domain model while still leaving them linked does that all make sense on yeah the yeah I, I, if I could <laughs> yeah. if I could hit on a couple of yeah. points there yeah. as to to see if I if I've got what you're uh, yeah. saying as well which is one. Um, <laughs> Part of data mesh, but in general, if we can get there for everybody that isn't doing data mesh, uh, focus on sharing the context, right, mm-hmm. of of the domain, not the the model. This is part of I did um, what I'm calling a mesh musing, where I basically mm-hmm. just kind of share what I've learned, why I'm not real high on using uh, data virtualization for mm-hmm. creating your data products because you are just yeah, um, yes, they can do some transformations and things like that, but there's all sorts of challenges. But all, the default is to start by sharing your persistence model, right? Mm-hmm. To to share the way that the data is stored, not the context and the, the actual like understanding and logic. Mm-hmm. Um, another aspect that you were talking about um, that I, I wanted to also ask about was you were talking about if the persistence model is changing and if you can continue on with the old persistence model um, so that, you know, or the, the snowflake table or whatever the downstream consumption point could be, how do you think about evolving that to end of life things and, and things like that is, is an important topic there, mm-hmm. but you know, I, I think overall, there's just so much here that, that I want to jump into. And my brain's just not letting me p- 
pick any one point <laughs> out because I think it's it's such great um, thinking through about how do we evolve and, and make sure that our applications can evolve, that we're not saying you are locked into doing things the way that you are doing. But um, like John Vines did uh, one of the, the data mesh learning meetups uh, around event mesh and, and kind of what you're talking about of CDC, I could see event mesh being kind of a good um, way of doing that because what, you know, they've got the persistence stores and then they're publishing everything into an event mesh. And then they're going to be building their data products off of those events. So mm-hmm. it, it is something where you're, you're thinking about not breaking your pipelines into getting that data into the events. And then you can figure out more about how you do that, that context um, sharing because you've got that one layer out that, that, that you're not trying to, to go direct from what is my persistence to I'm going to maximize my context and share it out in that way that you, you kind of think of there as being a little bit of an intermediary layer, whether that's in concept only or whether that's actually in technology. I think being able to, to pop out and back that away is, is, is potentially a useful first practice, whether you want to do that as your implementation or not, but that you can, you, you abstract away a little bit and, and, you know, with data mesh, how are you abstracting? How are you providing those abstractions to the domains? A lot of what you talked about of how do you maximize or how do you share your context is how do you make it so that the domains don't have to do all that work? Right. So sorry. All all of that, all that resonates, but I do want to emphasize, uh, you know, as, uh, as is my want in my role as the world's biggest analytics engineering cheerleader, uh, that, uh, look, the, the value of separating persistence model and the domain model uh, or persistence model and some other abstraction layer, like events, uh, that value is really predicated uh, or at least largely predicated on the uh, domain model being uh, more durable. Uh, than the persistence model, right? The persistence model might change for performance reasons. I might chart or I might move some columns around. I might normalize, I might denormalize, I might move to a graph store, you know, whatever. Uh, the domain model should be relatively stable, right? Uh, is that a fair assumption? Well, not if your domain model sucks. <laughs> and enter again, enter again the importance of data-minded people, of data-minded people that are really used to thinking about the structure of data. Uh, being involved in structuring that domain model. I can't emphasize enough. And I know not all, all organizations can do it, uh, but it is, it, is, it is a place I would encourage everyone to get to because it is a special skill set. It is a special skill set, something that analytics engineers are well positioned to do because, again, of uh, their, their role in both worlds, right? They have a foot in the consumer world. They have a foot in the producer world if they're, if they're well positioned. And that enables them to really think about what is a domain model that is going to scale? And with every PRD, how do I evolve my domain model in a way that is thoughtful, right? How do I really take a pause and evolve my domain model in a way that's thoughtful? And then how do I bring that domain model to a, like a review committee, right? A formal data review so that the collective hive mind is also weighing in, you know, however large, however well-established that collective hive mind is on, yes, this domain model, you know, we feel good about. And if you do all of that, then it's a reasonable assumption that your domain model is going to be more durable. If you don't do all of that, then you might end up with, uh, you know, an an event-based model that is really no better because those events are just as destructive as the persistence model, right? Uh, It's not no better because events, you know, can give you, uh, uh, you know, better, uh, you know, versioning and whatnot. Um, So it's not no better, but it's not much better, right? Yeah. Um, So it's it's socio and technical kind of of coming back to it. So I'm, uh, want to be cognizant of time here. Um, I do have one last question that, that I think, um, what I don't want to ask is where are you finding these analytics engineers? Cause one, I don't want you to have to give up your, your secrets, if you're, secret if you're finding these people. but how would somebody get towards being in that role? Like what, what do you see as the necessary background or the necessary ability for them to develop? So that they could be, if somebody was bought into to what you're talking about. You know, how how do we create more of these analytics engineers? Yeah, look, I, I think it uh, you know it takes all kinds, uh, and I think one of the one of the things that we look for uh, is 
is a diversity of backgrounds uh, because this industry, I mean, this this notion of analytics engineering, uh, I think basically DBT uh, led the charge here on, on coining the coining the phrase, um, and DBT also beyond coining the phrase uh, led. Uh, uh, the enablement of the possibility of the analytics engineers, right? Um, and that notion has been around for less than five years. Uh, the notion of the analytics engineering that I'm talking about, uh, well, I don't know another company that does it. Uh, the way I position analytics engineering, uh, I'm, I'm not sure is, is, a, is a thing in the rest of the industry, but I, I think it will be. I think it should be for the reasons we've talked about here. Uh, what I look for, uh, given that, given that there isn't really, you know, an established industry I can pull from, uh, you know, what I look for is, uh, well, number one, some companies that uh, I think do it right, have the right kind of relationship between analytics engineering and, and engineering teams uh, that, you know, they could they could work well in this kind of model. And I think, uh, you know, one of the best companies for that is actually Amazon and the data engineering role at Amazon. Amazon is a very heterogeneous, very diverse. Uh, that data engineering role is diverse in different teams. But, uh, you know, I found that in a lot of places, um, uh, you know, that's that's a company, that's a domain uh, that. Uh, can think about data and has the right experiences to be able to manage, you know, this kind of responsibility. Uh, two is, uh, you know, look, cast a wide net. You know, I think I've talked to some, some of my favorite candidates that I talk to are people from the library sciences, right? Um, which I hadn't really thought about before. They're, they're uh, but, very well trained around yeah, data about, acquisition, about, information around, acquisition. Around thinking like about information semantics. management, topology management, semantic management, all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, and that's you know that that's a that's a, that's a that's a, a, a an area I'd love for the industry to dive into you know far more. Um, a pool I'd love for us to uh, to fish from. Uh, and uh, and then you know invest in folks because this this industry doesn't exist. So invest in folks, uh, uh, put them on teams where you know they can they can learn from peers that have different specializations, uh, and look for you know some software engineer types um, that you know really want to get back to the M and MVC, uh, some you know disgruntled data analysts that really want to uh, you know maybe maybe focus more on, on data structures and, and obviate some of the problems that you know were plaguing them as analysts these implicit contracts problems. Uh, you know, some library scientists folks that, you know, may or may not be as technical, uh, some big co folks, uh, and really just try and put together a diverse team where people can learn from each other. Um, and you can coach up to the standard of the analytics engineering you want to see. So, you know, for me, um, it is not an easy role to hire for. It's a very fun role to hire for. Um, and I think it requires, uh, some creative hiring and really thinking about building a healthy, diverse team. Uh, uh, and that's all you can do in an area when, in an area where uh, you know the industry just isn't established, certainly not in the way that I've defined the role. Does that make yeah, sense? For sure. Yeah, no, totally. Um, so I really want to thank you for for taking all this time and and dropping so many knowledge bombs on, on us. I'm sure I'll, I'll uh, ask you to be back. You don't obviously have to <laughs> to do it if you don't want to, but um, I'll drop your LinkedIn and your Twitter in the show notes. Is there anything else for people to re- you know if you want to give a general shout out for people to, to reach out to you or, you know, what's the best way to get in to- contact and, and what are you looking to kind of chat with people about? Yeah. Uh, look, I, I'm, I'm really passionate about all things data mesh, data contracts. You know, I've, I've lived in the trenches here. You know, I face these problems. Uh, I want to, uh, uh, I want to prevent the next generation of data practitioners from having to deal with, with the same pain and heartache and tears that, that, that I went through. So always happy to chat. Uh, you know, I've had plenty of chats with folks on Data Mesh. And uh, as we talk about, uh, well, this technology side, the lineage, the catalog, the, uh, the enablement uh, of, of publishing, uh, if you want to talk about data contracts, if you want to talk about analytics engineering, or the socio-technical, you know, kind of broader process approach uh, to data contracts, uh, you know, please reach out on Twitter and uh, we'll go from there. Okay. Well, thanks everybody for listening and uh, another great episode. And um, you know, thanks to my guest, Abi Sivasailam from Flexport. So please do check out the show notes and get in touch. Thanks again to my guest, Abi Sivasailam from Flexport. If you want to get in touch with Abi to continue the conversation or talk about other topics as well, you can find his contact info in the show notes. I highly recommend it. He's a great person to chat with. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast. 
somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music. 